0: Song Facts Get your song facts right here Get you song facts, Get your song facts right Hello 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast I am your host Corey O'Flanagan and as always this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network Get your song Guys, this is such an exciting episode, but before we get into it, I just want to say thank you for listening and for being here. And if you want to go ahead and hit subscribe, tell a friend, do anything to help us continue to grow, I want you to know that I would appreciate that. Also feel free to email me, tweet me, all that information is in the show notes and I would love to hear from you if you have suggestions on who we should have on the show coming up in the next year, anything like that, your opinion matters, we aim to please. On the show today, I get yet another chance to speak with someone who has been a part of the story of my favorite band, The Grateful Dead. Dennis McNally tells us about his first Dead show in 1972, gives us some truly amazing song facts, you'll want to hear the story of Terrapin Station, trust me, and he recounts his time getting to be around the band as their biographer and publicist. If you love the Dead like I do, stick around for this one as we hear some great stories from someone who lived within the wonderful world that is the Grateful Dead. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Dennis McNally. Seven, come Dennis McNally, let's go back to your start. How did you end up being so closely associated with the Grateful Dead family?
1: Well, not to turn it into a three hour talk. (laughs) I, I, if I I went to every little thing, I would swear. So I was in graduate school and uh, I was hanging out with a a guy uh, who was a deadhead as it turned out. and this is like 1972, okay. so quite a ways back. And uh, uh, he encouraged me, I, I was talking about a, a dissertation topic and, and he encouraged me to, uh, I, I was talking vaguely about the beats and he said, no, 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 you should, you should do Kerouac. His, his letters are at Columbia and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. Um, and when you're broke graduate students, uh, um, the uh, a free place to stay in Manhattan, or you know, subway ride from uh, from Columbia, um, is uh, very attractive. Yeah. He also was, a de- as I said, was a deadhead. So he, that happened. As a matter of fact, the guys that were in that apartment are still some of my best friends. And uh, then that fall, so that was February '72. In October, he took me to my first show, and gave me my first psychedelic, and I had a wonderful time. So I became a deadhead. So then. I wanted to write a second book. First was about Kerouac, which eventually came out in 79. Um, I wanted to write a second book because I saw all these co- connections between yeah. uh, the Beats and the and, uh, Grateful Dead. And uh, but I had no idea how to approach the Grateful Dead and mailed a copy of the book, uh, one to Jerry, one to Hunter, at the Grateful Dead um, fan mailbox, yep. post office box 1065, San Rafael, California. Remember. And um, long story short, met Jerry and slid into the conversation that I'd written this book and I'd sent it to him. And did he get it? And he Kerouac was a fundamental role model for him. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think I did an okay job on the book, but but you know, in particular, he was Kerouac was really important to him and he liked my approach. So eventually he said, why don't you do us? Why don't you write a book about us? To which I said, gee, that might be a good idea. Um, and um, it was downhill from there. Three years later, um, the the receptionist was complaining that nobody was returning media phone calls because uh, the manager was overworked and didn't like media anyway. And the guy was had theoretically done it, had gone off for rehab. Um, and, um, Garcia said, get McNally to do it. He knows that stuff. And uh, I had at least done a, a book tour for the Kerouac book. So I became the publicist. And, you know, after that, it was. Then you were in. I was, well, <laughs> I got laid off at 86 when he, when he had a diabetic coma. But that was it, the next couple of times that there were pauses. Uh, the, the reaction was a little different. So got it. Yeah, it, it all worked out. Do you remember much from that first show? I remember uh, among other things that it was not remotely sold out in a 7,000 seat arena. So relatively small, you know, uh, not NBA size. Okay. Um, and it was maybe two thirds sold out, uh, two thirds sold. Um, so that it was very easy. My, uh, I discovered uh, that while I really enjoyed um, LSD, it did make me want to sit down. I, my, I didn't really like standing all that much. Um, and there were all these empty seats uh, to the side of the stage. Um, so I went over there and plunked myself down and put my feet up and the, the sound was great. And, and uh, you know, had this wonderful show, which included a morning dew at the end. And um, i eventually, um, when uh, Dick became the, the archivist, yeah. I said, you have to make me a copy of my first show. And he did. So I have that around um, and it was a classic 72 show, which is to say, they didn't seem to know how to end the show. It went on <laughs> and on. I mean, second sets could, it was amazing how long they could go. And they were younger and, you know, as they got older, they maybe, you know, want to do a shorten it down a little. Uh, but yeah, no, I remember quite a lot about. it. Uh, I, I, I also particularly remember uh, vividly um, going back and rejoining my friends at the end of the show and um one of them um uh would perspire so much in shows that uh he looked like he literally looked i mean his clothing and his hair and everything looked like he just stepped out of the shower um and and that i was like wow you know but um (laughs) you know it was it was a wonderful experience that was mostly what i remember about the show
0: yeah i feel like a lot of people have that first experience and it's very seldom, that I think people still link walk out of it with a question mark. They're kind of like, "I'm in or I no, you either in. get it or you don't. Yeah. Um,
1: later, uh, one of the things I remember once talking with Jerry about the, the one of the things that I really uh, appreciated uh, most at, at the beginning and, and after a while it, it was it, it couldn't it would no longer obtain was that um, when they would jam from one song to the next, uh, when you're new, Almost every note is like uh, you don't know the pattern. And and so you're you, you might know the two different songs, but you don't know what they're doing in the middle. Yeah. Um, so that uh, suddenly you sort of look up and go, oh, they're playing X. Yeah. Um, I wonder when they stopped playing Y and started playing X. And you know, you don't see, you don't hear that it, after you've gone to hundred shows. You know, you do. I mean, you know, you, you know that you know the, the new song, you know, two notes in. I mean, you you can hear it coming, um, and you you've you've listened to those transitions so that you know you see how they do it. Uh, it's not sleight of hand, um, but. Um, uh, at the beginning, you know, you you don't, and it's like marvelous because you just suddenly realize, what <laughs> has that man got up his sleeve? You know, I mean, it really it was there was a certain sleight of hand magic act thing to it, the transitions, um, and that, and, and I I remember that specifically from that first night where I'd be sitting there going, what the hell just happened?
0: <laughs> it's so true, and I remember reading somewhere back in. Um like the mid to late 60s when they really took on, they left the Warlock's name and came into the Grateful Dead name. And I just remember reading something that was like, they sat there in practice sessions, really practicing that idea of stitching songs together seamlessly, whether it was changing to a different key, completely different tempo, different time signature. And obviously that practice paid off because they're really incredible in the sense of being able to do that. And I think that's the kind of thing that either turns somebody on or off, right? A lot of people, if you're no- used to a normal concert, it's here's 12 songs and they start and stop. And then we take a little break to retune up and then go to the next song and the dead can do a full seamless second set for two hours.
1: You know, it, it, it's the paradigm is just completely different um, from all uh, from all other bands, uh, r- literally all other bands, because they had an experience experience. Um, that was truly, I think, unique. Uh, And I've used that word precisely. Other musicians obviously um, did LSD and play, Jimi Hendrix being an obvious example. But what the Grateful Dead experienced early on when they were still figuring out who they were, what they were doing was uh, uh, this two month period of the acid tests in which they were not the show. Everybody in the room was the show. They were merely the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And so they related to the audience and really did, at least down deep for the next 30 years, not as I am the artist, you are the audience. You know, I will make my art and you will applaud and give me money and like that. Yeah. Um, uh, What they concluded was that uh, the audience was, in fact, their partners, partners in a quest, uh, and nobody quite knew what the quest was, but you know, they were, they were willing to, uh, to try. Um, but, and that's, that's a really fundamentally different approach. Yeah. So there you go.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, well, I need to thank you for helping me set up the interview that I did earlier this year with Donna Jean Godshow. That was mm-hmm. just a dream come true for me and amazing to just kind of get to hear her some of that some of her stories and during that process you told me this really remarkable story about the tune terrapin station and how that came to be and i was hoping that you might be able to share that with us
1: let my inspiration flow I'd be glad to. Although I warn you, it's my best story. So, you, you know, you're, you're asking me to break out the good material right in front. Oh, we got to start um, out hot. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, there's nothing there's not there, I have never heard a, a songwriting story of this good. Um, yeah. Actually, it's not just Grateful Dead. This is a really kind of a remarkable story, at least in terms of partnership. Yep. So, Jerry had been, uh, for those of you uh, not familiar with the San Francisco Bay Area, um, one of the facts, and I'll I'll do this as preliminary uh, um, explanation. We don't, it's a meteorological fact that we almost never get lightning. It just does not happen in the Bay Area. Some fact about being near the ocean, whatever, I don't know. Hmm. Um, I mean, literally I've seen serious lightning I've been here 40 years, and if I've seen it more than five times, I'd be surprised.
0: Wow, that's so interesting.
1: Um, And so Jerry uh, was in the East Bay, and there's a bridge called the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge, and he lived in Marin, which is to the west. Um, And Jerry had been in in the East Bay, and he's driving home um, on the the bridge, and there's a wild storm out to his right on the northern end of... uh, of the bay, lightning and just great, wonderful storm. And suddenly he hears a tune in his head and it's the basic riff of Terrapin. He hears the whole tune in his head. I mean, Terrapin is in fact, not just because they added a a string orchestra in in the, uh, the record, it's really a small symphony and it's very complex yeah and yeah. he's like going, oh, this is something and he jams on the gas and he gets home as fast as he can to turn on a tape recorder to start to get the you know the essential facts of the of the tune down um and within him, the next day, you know, and he fiddled, probably fiddled, fiddled with it for a day. I'm, I'm not sure. And um, after a day or two, he went over to see Hunter. As it happened, Hunter lived on the shore of that bay and had been sitting watching the same storm. And when he was watching the same storm, he was inspired to start writing. And he started with a an old English folk tune called The Lady of Carlisle. And... Wrote in fact eight solid typewritten pages of lyric. And Jerry came over and said, Wow, I got a good tune. And Hunter said, Yeah, I got some good lyrics. And Jerry looks at him and he takes page one, page two, and half of page eight. <laughs> you can't do eight, you know, maybe Dylan could get away with yeah, the yeah, exactly. eight page <laughs> subs, but but uh sad eyed ladies of the lady of the lowlands, but so. Uh, took, you know, the lyrics v- virtually unchanged, sat down with the band, taught them the band, and um, uh, they opened they, they, a week later, two weeks later, very quickly thereafter. They played a show in, um, and you can look it up, uh, in uh, San Bernardino, Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino, which was a very odd place because it had this, Strange stuff on the ceiling. I've never understood it, but that's neither here nor there. And they opened the show with Terrapin. And it, wow. at Jerry's funeral, Hunter said that uh, when they played Terrapin that, that time, the first time, it was the closest he'd ever uh, got to absolute certitude that he had been put on Earth to write words for Jerry to sing etc that that you know that everything you know the universe came together and you know it's a magnificent song and one I
0: endlessly love to hear so stay tuned for more song facts podcast right after this ever wonder how my voice is bouncing off your eardrums so clean and crispy no well let me tell you anyway The Lyra microphone by AKG brings their legendary acoustic engineering to a versatile USB mic that delivers the highest quality audio in its class, USB connection. This is good for me, because of the simplicity and the ability to just plug and play without an interface. You may have gathered from various episodes that I am doing this show on the road, so being that I record most interviews in a different location than the last, it is good for me to know that I have a high-quality, easy-to-transport and-use USB mic like the Lyra to make sure my sound is clean. Whether you're like me and recording a podcast, a musician, recording vocals or an instrument, or if you need to do a voiceover for a YouTube channel, Lyra's innovative AKG adaptive capsule array adapts to your performance to record pristine audio. It has four versatile capture modes. What's a capture mode, you ask? That is how the mic picks up your voice. Just trust me, with these four options, it's really all you're going to need. With AKG Lyra, you'll be up and running in no time, no matter your experience level. There's no assembly, no need for separate audio interface, no fiddling with software settings, it just works right out of the box. And Lyra is something that is compatible with Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android devices, and all major recording softwares. So. If you're looking for a mic that offers ease of use along with a high-quality sound, check out the AKG Lyra and look no further. It seemed to me, from my history of, of reading about the Dead and just kind of that songwriting partnership, that you know Hunter he wrote a lot of words, and that so that eight-page scenario I think could happen before where they were like well we got to try and like clean this up a little bit and make this into you know something that's not just an epic 12-15 minute yeah, song no,
1: I mean he, he wrote some that he recorded himself too The uh, when, he w- when he was going into the studio but um, uh, you know he was always more prolific than Jerry there was always literally a stack Jerry always had a stack of Hunter lyrics um, that uh, he could go to when he got a tune that he thought was, you know, worth paying attention to, yeah, um, and you know, there, I mean, they, you know, Hunter started by, well, I mean, his first effort where he was consciously writing for the Grateful Dead was the the first the first verse of Dark Star. was in 67, uh, fall of 67. He uh, had already written, not thinking about the Grateful Dead, uh, the ly- what turned out to be the lyrics to China Cat Sunflower. Um, and uh, I think he'd also contributed a few lines to Alligator.
0: Okay. But
1: that's, you know, his his debut really. Yeah, um, And uh, eventually, and he, they did other things, not all of which came out as the way they wanted them to. Cosmic Charlie never made Jerry happy. There was just something about it that just didn't work. Um, So eventually, uh, Hunter and his uh, uh, lover, uh, Christine, moved in with Jerry and Mountain Girl in Larkspur, California. And uh, Hunter told me the story of, of one time of coming downstairs with some lyrics Jerry is sitting in front of the television, where he always was, which was in front of the television with the sound off, playing guitar. And uh, Hunter showed him, you know, gave him the lyrics. And Jerry said, oh, great. You know, I'll get to this this afternoon. And Hunter looked at him and said, Garcia, if you think I live in this house for the dubious pleasure of your company, (laughs) try again. I'm here for us to write songs, and Jerry went, "Oh, right, got it." And they got to writing the song, and there was so I don't know how long that I never I never did ask her how long that lasted, um, but basically it was like all of '69, and what you have is a really remarkable thing going on, which is almost schizophrenic, and that is the band is playing. The band is this, you know. Off the wall, crazy um, j- jazz rock fusion, improvisational—you know, monster. Yeah. Um, and they are—you know—they're—they're just—they're—they're they're visiting the heavens. And at the same time, uh, Jerry and Bobby, uh, pardon me, uh, and Robert are writing these—not necessarily country, but Americana. They call it Americana americana songs that um that are you know capable of being uh, you know uh, played recorded you know with precision and and specifics um in part because that's what they, you know that's where they started you know they met in 61 and and uh briefly had a folk duo yeah. and it was out of the folk music scene and and what jerry then took into and a deep folk music scene i mean we're not talking about you know, Kumbaya, uh, just Kumbaya. Uh, they're they're talking, we're talking about about uh, he- heavy blues or Doc Watson, whatever. And then yep. in the bluegrass, which is where Jerry went and Hunter a little bit too. Um, and in 69, you've got uh, outside influences like for instance, the band, Big Pink, which was a, you know, a, an album that, that suddenly sort of um, tipped all those rockers that, because many of the rockers had come out of the folk scene, you know, and but it had gotten electrified at post Beatles, and now they're going, oh, you know, we don't just have to play electric, and let's, and so you get Sweethearts of the Rodeo, and you know, a lot. Of, there, there's a there's a whole shift, and the Grateful Dead were definitely part of that. So just to finish, you know, '69, they write all these songs. Um, they, uh, and then they get to January of 1970 and, um, uh, their manager, their putative manager, a guy named Lenny Hart, Mickey's father steals the money yeah. and runs, uh, they get busted in new Orleans. Um, and, you know, I, and I said that to, to Jerry about, you know, Oh, guys must have been sort of wobbling at that point. And he went yeah I, and the, and they go in the studio and, and what it in fact becomes working man's dead. yeah and, um, and I said, you know you must have been things must have been really crazy. He said, well, no, not really the, 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 or at least put it this way. The, the same place was the studio. I mean, we were making good music. that was what was important, the rest, <laughs> you know. Um, and and that was always Jerry's priorities. you know, if the music was good, the other stuff, uh, you know, mattered very little, um, and because of uh, economic reasons, they had signed a contract with Warner Brothers that gave them uh, unlimited—big <laughs> mistake—unlimited uh, studio time. I
0: remember seeing uh, but that
1: they thing. had to pay for it, so they were two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt to Warner Brothers at a time when that's a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Might be a little less, you know, um, uh, 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 the amount now. So um, there was no way that they could get, you know, endless studio time, and it didn't. It wasn't appropriate for the music. So, as Jerry said, you know, they were thinking in terms of uh, the Bakersfield Buck Owens Bakersfield sound. Uh, keep it simple. Keep it pure. Um, and and keep it spare. And um, so instead of newly as you know the first album they recorded in three days and they kind of let themselves be pushed around by the by the pros yep so in reaction they spend they, they drive out their producer uh in the second album and and have Healy produce it and go completely maniacal with anthem of the sun with the kind of attempt at creativity and fusing live and studio um and in the third they 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 uh they took they took on the challenge of uh 16 tracks um, and frankly, screwed it up because <laughs> they were they were mixing by committee and, and while doing nitrous, completely bad combination <laughs> of factors. Um, so they lost, literally they lost it in the mix. There was marvelous material there, but it, you know it doesn't quite come up. Yeah. So now they get to you know step four, and they do another reaction. But the reaction is to go back and keep it simple. Stupid. And they did. And so, and there's a wonderful story from Joe Smith uh, of Warner Brothers. He got the f- his first cassette, uh, and it was Uncle John's Band. It was the first song he heard from the new album. Well, the first days are the hardest days, don't you worry. easy street there is danger at your door think this through with me let me know you what, what, what I want to know and he literally
2: you,
1: you know he was expecting more of you know anthem of the sun you know more yep. and he ran down the corridors of Warner Brothers scream, screaming the grateful dead have written a song, a radio song, something we can put on the radio. (laughs) And he was very happy.
0: (laughs) So out of that prolific, because I think that between the Hunter Garcia songwriting relationship that time when they were the, the working man's dead and then the subsequent next two or three albums were just pure those guys at, just vibing off of each other and, and just really writing some amazing tunes. And is that where "Friend of the Devil" came out of? Was it that time period, or was that later?
1: I lit out from Reno. I was trailed by twenty hounds. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Set out, run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight. Just my get some sleep tonight. Ran into the devil, yes. baby, Friend of the devil was an interesting song. They had started New Riders of the Purple Sage, which yeah. was um, a sort of an opening act, and it only required one hotel room. Uh, They shared rooms in those days, and so they brought, uh, when it first began, they had uh, Nelson and and, and Marmaduke, Uh, they had the room, Um, and then it was Phil on bass, and um, Mickey on drums, and uh, Jerry on pedal steel. And that was, you know, that was, so they call that uh, An Evening with the Grateful Dead. And, you know, so no more opening acts and and, and so forth. As I say, Hunter, Hunter had these lyrics and he showed them to Nelson and they started working on a song. Uh, and they, uh, they're they fiddling around getting a sort of a first take tape of it. And Hunter tells them, yeah, this song's called Friend of the Devil. And... Um, uh, if you listen to the beginning of it as it's recorded, uh, uh, Nelson uh, was just, just to check he, before they started recording, he checked, checking to see um, that his guitar was in tune and he ran down this ding, 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 you know, ran down a, a scale. Yeah. And if you listen to the recording, that's how the song opens.
0: And so it's that just little bass run that's done on a guitar, that was kind of just a practice?
1: That was a, that was his, when he first did that, uh, he did it simply to, to, to check the guitar's tuning. Okay. And they kept it. It, it. Suddenly it became part of the song. What happens is Hunter leaves and goes, uh, goes home where he's living with Garcia. And and Hunter's and Hunter says, Yeah, I just was over at Nelson's and I wrote this song with him, you know, started a song with him. Garcia says, Let me see. And Nelson and Nel- so Hunter gives him the tape. And the next morning uh, they woke up and Garcia had written the bridge that got three reasons why I cry awake each lonely night. And it became a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> it became a Jerry song. He made other modifications. So I mean Nelson got credit but it wasn't going to be a new writer's song anymore. It was a Grateful Dead song.
0: So like, I know that everything was very giving in the family at that time, but there was no tension between like, well, this could be a new writer's hit. And Jerry's like, no, nope, it's a dead tune. No, sorry.
1: One of the things about the Grateful Dead, what Jerry had done was make the song much, much better. Okay. And one of the things about the scene around the Grateful Dead is people tended to defer to Jerry. For the right reasons, not because. Uh, let's put it this way. In general, he was the most encouraging. He spent years. I was going to say encouraging. You know, also um, blackmailing and muttering at uh, Weir to write songs. Now, you know, anybody who's paid attention to rock history, you know, you've got the, the great examples of Bill Wyman and George Harrison um, and their eternal complaints about not being able to get songs on the albums, their songs, uh, because they weren't Lennon McCartney and they weren't the Glimmer Twins. Um, Nobody ever said that in the Grateful Dead. I mean, you know, Brent Midland, the new guy, uh, gets four songs, more songs than anybody on the last album because he had the best songs. Jerry and 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 Nelson and uh, and Hunter did almost you know a, the bulk of the material uh, on um, Working Man's in American Beauty because they had the best song by far. It was the you know there was nobody sitting around saying oh you know put this in. Um, finally, they got Hunter uh, weird to do uh, Truckin' and I and Sugar Magnolia. So there's there's two, but you know at that era they were just. That, that was the most creative thing happening in the band. Yeah. So no, there was no, there just wasn't uh tension. Jerry, Jerry had taken it over out of uh musical genius and force of personality and nobody was going to argue about it. That, yes. Yeah. That wasn't what was happening at the time.
0: I, I, I want to jump ahead now a little bit because we're, we're talking about that era in the early seventies when these guys are writing all of this music mm-hmm. and really just kind of, finding fine-tuning their partnership and and really perfecting it and it really continued for quite a bit of time and then in the early 80s i believe you get um one that i don't the current lineup of dead and co i don't know if it would exist without the song althea Um, Because from my understanding, it was the song that turned John Mayer on to the band. And he probably wouldn't have just, you know, gone as deep into the learning about the dead and, and the music as he has without that entry point. And so I wanted to just kind of touch on that a little bit, because now we're roughly another decade down the road. The band has, you know, gone through the pig pen era the the keith and donna era and now you've got brent like you said who's in it and i'm just wondering what you can tell me about that tune althea because it has i mean it's one of the more popular easy listening dead tunes that there is
1: my reactions to the song are are, um, are complex because um uh, they frequently played it far too slowly and it made me crazy <laughs> and also they overplayed it like crazy in the early 80s they yeah Bob Weir once said, Well, we kind of got stuck. And they were, they were, they were a bit stuck in the early 80s um, musically. Uh, it, you know, the, the 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 set list tended to be all the songs got put in slots. That's true. It's one of the great things about Den Company is that, you know, they'll the songs that were closers, they open with, you know, they 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 have they've really loosened up their approach to things and, and it's it's much freer um althea you know uh, is is an interesting song uh, mostly because to me uh there's this um and right now i'm pulling a blank on the lyric um there's this uh line in it about um nobody's
0: nobody's messing with you but you
1: but you but you your friends are getting most concerned loose with the truth uh it's no lie uh, baby I hope you don't get burned yeah now uh, it is very tempting as a biographer which I was to read that as a message from Hunter to Garcia who at that time was slipping into um, drug addiction yep and was uh, you know and every druggy starts fibbing about, you know I got a cold, you know, and I don't feel good, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: and, and so, to me, I mean, that's one of the sort of buried elements of the song. Whether Hunter had that in mind, I have no idea. Um, I certainly wouldn't ask, you know, one of the rules about working with the Grateful Dead is you never ask Hunter to explain the meaning of the lyrics. <laughs> that That was, you know, the I once I once tread on that I I uh, I said to him something about um, I think it was to lay me down and it was the, the when the blind man takes your hand and I said well, that's the best metaphor for death you know maybe ever and he looks at me and he says really and it was like oh <laughs> but I was talking to myself saying oh man you screwed that one up and I shut up quickly and realized <laughs> whoops okay back off because he he was. It, all my questions to him were never about the meaning of songs. It was always about context. Yeah. You know, tell me the story, tell me the story of, of writing and tell, you know, whatever. Um, and, or, you know, the, the story about him uh, giving Garcia a hard time for, you know, putting something off. Um, that, you know, he was perfectly happy to talk about that, you know, as long as it didn't verge into the, explicate the lyrics. So, so, you know, anyway, that was my, uh, so, my take on Althea is very specifically my take. I, I don't know what uh, what they said. One of the things you have to remember is that uh, Robert was Robert and Jerry was Jerry. They were not the same person. But Jerry had complete faith and trust that if Robert wrote it, um, it would you know he could sing it. it. It would it would it would work work well. Um, yep. And Jerry, Jerry could sing, you know, for instance, pop songs, um, Smokey Robinson, uh, that are that are you know kind of s- smooth lover kind of lyrics, um, because that was somebody else's song. Yeah, but that was not going to work for something that was original to him and, and Hunter, and Hunter understood that. Uh, there, was, there was a certain um, dignity that he brought to it. And, you know, he didn't say baby. Um, uh, Hunter wouldn't in lyrics. It was, you know, it was about a lady. Uh, there was a romanticism, actually, that, um, yeah. that uh, suited Jerry. But I also remember him saying, Jerry, that uh, there were certain songs that felt so personal that if he, if he was really feeling bad, you know, it's kind of, as the word he used was raw. If he was feeling really raw uh, on certain nights, he wouldn't, he couldn't sing it. Like Mission in the Rain, which is sort of his, it encapsulates his childhood and yeah. young adulthood. Um, and um, he was very, you know, I moved into the, when I was working with the Grateful Dead, I moved into the Mission uh, uh, neighborhood of San Francisco and he, it really tickled him that somebody from the dead had gone back to, to the mission because uh, that was, you know, that was, that was his roots.
0: I love this. It flew by for me. I could sit here and talk Grateful Dead with you all day, but I am going to let you get on with yours. And um, thank you so much. Same to you. You take care. It's crazy to me how much I could just sit there and talk about that band and the history of it. I just absolutely love it. Thank you so much to Dennis for coming on and giving me some of his time. Guys, in a couple weeks, we're going to drop our second annual Pantheon holiday special, so stay tuned for that. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thank you so much.